שיעור מספר 186 של הרב יצחק עת שלום בנושא מקרא Gateway to Midrash. Greetings, good morning, welcome. I was asked by a few people to start with the word greetings. Inside joke, I guess, for Dafyomi followers. Um, my name is Yitzchak Et Shalom, so if you're on the right plane, buckle up. We have uh, an hour and ten minutes of uh, a lot of fun together. Um, however, it would be importune for us to, uh, to begin this year without admitting to several different clouds that hang over us. Uh, clearly, the cloud of this morning's news um, is something that weighs heavily upon all of us here. Um, see on your own if you haven't uh, found out. Um, and uh, more, in a sense, more directly to those of us in Yeshivat HaRetzion and Michal Herzog, uh, the passing of uh, our dear friend and teacher, Dr. Abigail Rock, a little more than 30 days ago, uh, Zichra Livracha, uh, we're dedicating this year to her memory, and uh, indeed, uh, I made that decision when we got the news, and it ended up turning this year into uh, something a little bit different, and, uh, and I have her to thank for that. Um, much of Avigail's pioneering work was done, and really led to a bit of a revival uh, in the study of a relatively unknown Rishon, or Yosef Ibn Kaspi. Uh, she did the Yeoman's work on it. In fact, it's her text that's used now on Hilla Nevetsky's wonderful site, which if you don't have bookmarked on every one of your machines, you should, which is alhatorah.org. Um, and as a result of that, I'm going to begin the, uh, today's shiur with a comment by of Yosef Ibn Kaspi, uh, which you see as the uh, first comment on the page. And it's going to open up the door to an, uh, uh, an avenue of questioning about the entire mifal, the entire enterprise, not only of Midrash, but of Parshanut, of how over the, through the generations we have looked at the text of the Tanakh and what we've done with the text of the Tanakh. So we begin with this in- interesting comment. Amar Yosef Ibn Kaspi. I'll pay attention to his name. Kavanatila Harich Binyan Yosef. Shumizad Sof Sefer Breshit. And then, as you can see in the comment there, Ibn Kaspi goes on to talk about the significance of Yosef, which, in a sense, throughout through the context of Jewish tradition, has to be highlighted because, of course, we think of the Avot and then Yosef's the next one. Why does Yosef Ibn Kaspi? draw out this, this importance and stress and underline the significance of Yosef. It's something we're going to get to later on. But it's a comment that I wanted to begin with uh, because I believe that it will help us unlock uh, a lot about the way that we understand the entire mifal, the entire enterprise of Midrash, uh, which we'll have to define right away. First, I would like to turn your attention to Source 2 on the page. Source 2 on the page is an enigma in and of itself. Uh, most mefarshim, most commentators who wrote programmatic introductions to their commentary, meaning setting out, this is what I intend to do, this is how I intend to go about it, these are the, uh, the foundations of our commentary, 
wrote such an introduction before their commentary on Sefer Bereshit. In certain cases, uh, before other Sfarim, uh, the famous introduction of the Abravanel before Sefer Dvarim, there are many introductions, programmatic introductions, before different books of the Nevi'im, and specifically some of the Megillot, uh, Tehillim, Iov. Uh, but the Rashbam has a programmatic introduction in the middle of Bereshit, which is odd, and that is at the beginning of Parshat Vayeshev. And that's the piece that's, on, that's uh, in source two. Why he does it, and this is absolutely an aside, but why he does it is something that becomes clear only later on in Parshat Vayeshev because the Rashbam knows he's about to drop a bombshell. And the bombshell is, flying in the face of Midrashic tradition, that it was not the brothers who sold Yosef, but rather the Midyanim. And by the time the brothers got to the pit, and in this community, we're all familiar with this. It's nothing new. It was very new in 12th century France, and Rashbam knew that, and for that reason, he gave this introduction, along with likely an introduction that he wrote at the beginning of Breshit. The Rashbam at the beginning of Breshit is a little problematic for us. But in this introduction, he writes the following, and this is really stating out his entire raison d'etre as a, uh, as, a, as a commentator, but he introduces it with, with the following. I'm reading just the underlined part. The Rashbam turns around and says, and this is, should be surprising to us, because if we're familiar with the Rashbam, we know how much his entire focus is on Pshat, what he means by Pshat, what others mean by Pshat, may not be the same. He starts out by saying, we understand that the major teaching of the Torah is through Midrash. Midrash Halacha, Midrash Agada. However, he goes on after that to say, and as a result of that, those who came before me put all of their energy into the Midrashim to the point where they forgot how to learn Pshat. So I'm taking it upon myself to restore that. And he invokes the famous passage in the Gemara in Masachat Shabbat, in the sixth parak, Ein Mikrayot and he records a conversation he had with his grandfather, Rashi, uh, trying to convince him to write yet another commentary on Chumash based on new understanding of Pshat. And Rashi, according to this report, said he would do it, but ran out of time. So the Midrash seems to take this central position even in the thinking of those whose approach to the text itself is to try to unearth original intent, essential intent, contextual intent, however you understand what Pshad is. So what is this thing called Midrash? So just so that we're clear on what the terminology is and we're all working on the same page. Midrash is both a particular style of study. It's also a corpus of literature, particular books called Midrash. And it also has other meanings outside of the context of learning, such as inquiry, etc., as it's used in Sefer Dvarim. The Midrash that we're referring to as not just a corpus of literature, which essentially ranges from the period after the, the completion of the Mishnah, roughly middle of the 3rd century, near the beginning of the 3rd century, all the way through into the Middle Ages, into perhaps even 10th, 11th century, and even some Midrashim that are composed later. That enterprise itself, if you think about it, raises a lot of questions. Now, there are many 
parts of Midrash that we're familiar with, whose function is the same function we would think of any commentator to try to clarify what's going on in the text. Sometimes to even translate words. Sometimes it's there to provide background to a story. But often the Midrash, as we're all familiar, goes off to what seems to be quite distant from the text. And often will introduce stories, both stories that are happening theoretically, at the same time as the text within the story itself, or even stories that are happening sometime between then and now, and the now is the time of the composition of the Midrash, or even right now. Where's this coming from? And what's its purpose? And I essentially want to ask two questions, which God willing, within the next hour and two minutes, we will hopefully have answers to. Where did the Ba'alei HaMidrash, those who composed Midrashim, where did they get the mandate to do that? Mapitom, that you can take a look at a text in Tanakh and draw out all sorts of elaborate interpretations and then associate it with things that are happening in the world since then or even in the world around you. And the second question is, what mandate did we receive from them as a result? What tools did they give us such that the Midrashic work is one that in a very real sense has never stopped. And that's what we're going to look at over the course of this shiur, looking at a number of texts. Now all the texts that you have um, on the handout are Chazal, with the exception of two very small passages where the only two places where the word Midrash shows up in Tanakh. Now you see it, now you don't. Uh, however, and the heading of each one of them, I have identified psukim. If you have Tanakhim with you, feel free to look them up, but I'll reference the psukim, and many of them are well known, uh, which associate themselves with these midrashim. In almost every case, the association is never made explicitly in the midrash, and that's where I'd like us to go. Let's start with something uh, very... Piquant, perhaps. We're all familiar, I believe we're all familiar with Migilat Tanit. Everybody knows what Migilat Tanit is. Migilat Tanit is an ironic name because it's a list of days in which you're not allowed to fast. 37 different days or periods, not allowed to fast, and some of them you're not allowed to eulogize. It's perhaps the whole oldest halachic text that we have. And Vered Noam has done an amazing work in a critical edition of Migilat Tanit, put out about 15 years ago. However, in the period of the Geonim, there appeared a number of texts that were also referred to as Migilot Tanit. We refer to them as Migilat Tanit Batra, which is exactly what it says. It is a scroll of fasts, meaning days on which we should fast. These are days that are not mentioned in Tanakh, and these are days that are not mentioned anywhere in the Gemara. They show up later, and there are multiple versions of them. And they are actually quoted in Shulchan Aruch. There's a whole siman, one si'if in that siman, that lists these are days in which a person should fast. I've never met anybody, at least, who told me that they fast on these days. And Shulchan Aruch says, even though many of them are Rosh Chodesh, and most of them are sites. Most of them are days in which people died. Uh, Rosh Chodesh Nisan, Nadav Navihu. Um, according to one version, Chavav Nisan, Yehoshua Binun. 
Uh, one interesting is, uh, as an aside, the very first time that Lagba Omer or the 18th of Iyar shows up in any literature that we have is in Megillat Tanit as a fast day. Uh, but that's a whole Torah by itself. In Megillat Tanit, in one of the versions of Megillat Tanit, the one that's quoted by the Halachot Gdolot, and that's the version that I bring on the page, and that is quoted in Shulchan Aruch, there are three days in a row that are fast days. One of them is in Tanakh, that's Asarav and Tevet. The other two are 8th and 9th of Tevet. Curiously, the 9th of Tevet, it says in Halachot Dolot, and Shulchan Aruch says this is, 9th of Tevet's a fast day and we don't know why, which is really a lot of fun. So far, I haven't met anybody who has stuck to fasting on the 9th of Tevet and still turns and said, I don't know why I'm fasting. Um, but the 8th of Tevet is also a fast day. And what's the 8th of Tevet? So in Megillat Tanit Batra it says, "Bishmona b'tevet nichtava Torah Yivanit b'mei Talmai Hamelach uva choshech laolam shlosha yamim." All right. So what does that mean? This is referring to the very famous case of the Septuagint, of the translation of the Torah into Greek. Happened in the time of Ptolemy Philadelphus II, roughly the year 240 BCE. And according to this story, which first shows up approximately a fact. 800 to 900 years after the event, um, it was such a cataclysmic, in a metaphysical sense, event, that darkness descended for three days, which of course then connects very well with three days of fasting, 8th, 9th, and 10th. Now, where is this coming from? So I want to make uh, an, an overall statement right now, which is going to carry us through the shiur. Often we read a midrash of this sort, an agadah of this sort, and the first thing that we're going to ask is, did it happen? Every middle school kid asks that. Most high school kids ask that. And the reality is, most of us adults ask that also. Nobody in middle school right? Okay, Most of us adults ask the same question. Did it really happen? It is a legitimate question. And going through the Agadot, many of them you could ask the question, did Rabbi Kiva really have 24,000 students? Or was it 12,000 students like Gundar says? Or was it 300 students like it says in Tanhuma? Did they die really because of a plague, or were they killed in the Rorokhba uh, rebellion? Okay, we ask about the historicity of it. I'm not concerned with that for this year. I'm concerned with two other questions. When you have an Agadah, like with anything else, including Tanakh, you always have to ask two questions. Why is this told, and why is it told the way it is? Why is it told... And why is it told the way it is? When we hear about Avraham and his life, we are told a number of stories about him, a number of episodes. But if you think about it, there's a lot more episodes we never hear about. We never hear about how he courted Sarah, or what their wedding was like. So we have to ask, why is the Torah telling us the story about Sarah and Mitzrayim? And then we have to ask, why is the Torah telling us the way it is? Involving certain facts, leaving others out, using particular words to describe them. What's the Torah trying to teach me? And we ask the same question about Agadot. So I'm not concerned now with whether there was a three-day solar eclipse during the time of the, the middle of 3rd century BCE, somewhere. I'm much more concerned with why we're being told the story and why it's being told the way it is. So why we're being told the story should be fairly obvious. There is a, clearly a, a dispute within the world of the Chachamim. We're going to get to that towards the end of the Shi'ur. 
But there was a dispute within the world of the Chachamim about whether the Septuagint was a good idea or a bad idea. The Sugyan Masach and Megillah Davtet clearly thinks it was a very good idea, such that when Shimon allows Sifrei Torah to be written in Greek as a commemoration to that great miracle of the 70 or 72 men all having the same changes and translating the same way. Clearly, this represents a differing opinion that sees that as a terrible thing. A fast day, and it brought with it this three days of darkness. Okay. But why is it being told the way it is? So when you hear three days of darkness, what immediately comes to mind? Makat Choshech. Okay, good. But let's take a little further. What was Makat Choshech about? Makat Choshech did not have a direct attacking piece on the Egyptians, as did Barad. It essentially paralyzed them. But perhaps the key line in the whole little story of three psukim of Makat Choshech is, Ulechol b'nei Yisrael haya or That clear distinction, Hamavdil ben or l'choshech, between the Egyptians and b'nei Yisrael, is a critical piece of the story. What does our Agadah do? What have you done by translating the Torah into Greek? You've blurred the distinction between Am Yisrael and the Amim. And so now Choshech comes to you for three days. As a final note, where did the translation of the Septuagint take place? In Egypt. So we take a look at the Zagadah and we realize there's far more than just a statement of something happened, believe it, don't believe it, fast, don't fast. There's a whole attitude going on here about how we feel about translations. Let's take a look at another example. And this, I think, is certainly uh, piquant. We'll skip to example uh, seven for a moment. Um, the Gemara in Shabbat, the very famous Gemara because... It includes the story of Rishim Bar Yochai in the cave, which we're going to get to in a few minutes. We're not going, it's on the teal today, but we're going to go to the cave. Um, is prefaced to give us the background of why he ran away with a mention of Rabbi Yehuda. It's Rabbi Yehuda Rabbi Loi was called Rosh Hamadabrim. He was the prime speaker. And the Gemara asked, why was Rabbi Yehuda Rabbi Loi called Rosh Hamadabrim Makom? And it tells the story that Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai were sitting around, and Rabbi Yehuda got up and declared praise for the great things the Romans did. The Romans built bridges, the Romans built marketplaces, the Romans built bathhouses. Rabbi Yossi says nothing, and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai responds to each one of them and says, they built the bridges to take tolls, they built the marketplaces to put prostitutes there, they built the bathhouses for their own hedonistic purposes, and the Romans hear about it. And the Romans' response is, Yehuda Yehuda who praised us will be praised, will be elevated. Which means, by the way, something very disturbing, that Rabbi Yehuda's position in the Beit Midrash is what we like to call Rabbanut Mita'am. You guys remember that phrase? It's appointed by the Romans. Uh, we think Rabbanut Mita'am is like, you know, the, the old days in Moscow. And Rabbi Yossi she shatak yigleh Tzipori. He has to be exiled to his hometown of Tzipori. Rabbi Shimba Yochai Shigina Yehareg. 
Rabbi Yosem Reichai, who disgraced us, who degraded us, will be killed. And as a poster put out in all of the Roman post offices, got his face on the milk cartons, Shimbar Yochai, bounty, dead man. So that leads to the next story we're going to look at. However, I'd like to take a minute to look back and ask the question, why are Chazal telling us this story? Because the Chazal could have just said, the Romans decided to kill Shimbar Yochai. And we would right away know why, because Shimbar Yochai was a Talmud of Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Akiva inspired his followers to get involved in the Bar Kochba Rebellion. It's, it's, a no, it's a no-brainer. Instead, we have this entire story. And again, happened, didn't happen, I'm not concerned. Listen to the language. And I go back to Yaakov's deathbed. And what is Yaakov doing on his deathbed? I know, he's dying, I know. But what else is he doing on his deathbed? He's giving brachot. Some of the brachot are what I might call a mishaberach, but he's giving brachot. Okay. Among the brachot that he gives... Who gets the best one? Yehuda. Yehuda. And Yehuda is made the king. And Yehuda mit Allah. What about Yosef? Yaakov's favorite. Yosef is also given a beautiful bracha, but where is Yosef going to rule? In Egypt. In the Golan. Igle. And what happens to Shimon? Now look at it. Yehuda she'ila yit'aleh, Yosef she'gina, she'shatak igla l'tzipori, and Shimon she'gina yehareg. It's not a perfect analogy, of course. But it's a curious thing that these three chachamim, bearing the same names as three of Bnei Yaakov, who had, shall we say, stark representations at the, those brachot, are treated that way. I want to go back one step, and then I'm going to go back to the cave. I want to leave us while Shimbai Yochai is trying to find a place to hide. One of the most difficult things that we deal with, we who operate, and I'm saying we in a very broad sense, and then include yourself or not, who operate in a world of commitment to tradition and commitment to knowledge, one of the, perhaps the most difficult thing that we encounter in studying Hanukkah is the Neis Pach Hashemen. So we're all familiar with the story of the Neis Pach Hashemen, which shows up for the first time at least 500 years after the events of Hanukkah. People in the intervening time don't know about it. Josephus, as an example, tells the story and says they have a holiday they call Fotan, which is lights. And he says, I don't know why they call it lights. And then he says, maybe because they were in a dark place and then they were saved. Which means he neither knows about the Neis Pach Hashem nor about Mitzvah Ner Chanukah, but, and that's at the end of, 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 the, uh, of the time of the Mikdash. In any case, in Source 6, you see the story of the Neis Pach Hashem, and it's a well-known story. What happens to the Neis Pach Hashem? They come in and they use whatever oil is available, or none, to your sa'ot, next to none, and it lasts for eight days. Why eight days? What's eight days going to help? So a common approach is to say it took them eight days to go and prepare to purify themselves and prepare more oil, so they would have more oil, perhaps. But the whole story of the Neis Pach Hashem should remind us of a story that we have in Tanakh. What story is that? Exactly. The widow of one of the Bnei Hanavim, it's marked there in, uh, in um, uh, Malachim Bet Perak Dal at the beginning, 
the widow of one of the B'nai Hanavim, were all poorer than Shulmais, comes to, um, comes to Elisha, Avdecha Ishimait, I borrowed money and now I can't pay it back and the creditor is coming to, uh, is coming to seize my child. And he advises her to get, borrow as many empty vessels as she can and she's going to find that they'll all fill with oil until she's done with the vessels. In other words, what's the miracle? HaKadosh Baruch Hu miraculously providing enough oil until it's not needed anymore. Now again, I'm not asking the question, did Nes Pach Hashem happen or not? Not my problem here. Because, by the way, very clearly, if it did happen, it's not the reason we have Hanukkah. That should be obvious. I'll, I'll demonstrate it to you in one second. Let's say that Nes Pach Hashem happened and nothing else. After it happens, the Greeks are still controlling the Beit HaMikdash and we're still underground. Are we going to have a holiday? No. I don't think so. Let's say the entire story happens without Nes Pach Hashem. A small band defeats the Greek army, restores sovereignty to Israel, purifies the Beit HaMikdash, etc. Are we going to have a holiday? Yes, of course. So Nesbach Hashem is there as an addendum to the story. The question is, why is it there, and what's the purpose of its telling? And it seems to be connecting us to a story, a miraculous story, from Tanakh of Elisha. Parenthetically, even the eight days of celebration, which seems to not fit the model we're familiar with in the Torah, which should be seven, or if you want to borrow from Shlomo, perhaps 14, seems to also be based on a story in Divrei Hamim, it's marked there, Divrei Hamim, when Chizkiyahu re-inaugurates the Mikdash, with the famous Pesach that, Pesach Sheni that, he, that he brings, says that they ded- the dedication lasted eight days. And perhaps that means that the Chashmonaim themselves, perhaps, said, well, we're not rebuilding, it's not a new physical building, but we're re-initiating, we're re-inaugurating, we're sanctifying, perhaps that's the model that we should take. I want to quickly do three more pieces from here. Uh, and this is really the, the first section of, of Agadot that we're looking at. One of them is to pick up on the, uh, on the story of Rabbi Shem Yochai in the cave. Okay? So now, Rabbi Shem Yochai runs away. I told you, we're going to leave him running. Now he runs away, he goes to a cave. What happens when he gets to the cave? He buries himself in the sand with his son and... Outside of the mouth of the cave, two things happen. A carob tree and a spring. What's that? That's Eliyahu. That's exactly Eliyahu. And the first time we meet Eliyahu, Vayomer Eliyahu Agiladimi Toshave Gilad. Either he decrees or he just dead seven says Hashem decrees. It's unclear in the text that there's going to be a drought for the next years until it's relieved. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu immediately tells him to go down to Nachal Crete and to hide at the Nachal. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself has ravens bring Eliyahu food every day. Now, does it then un- is it then understandable why it is that it's Eliyahu who comes to the cave to tell Rabbi Shimba Yochai, you can leave now? What's happening in the Sagadah? Rabbi Shimba Yochai is reliving, I'm not going to say anything more than that, reliving Eliyahu Hanavi. And Eliyahu becomes connected in his story. And there are other stories with Eliyahu at that cave that continue in Agador Chazal, famous thing of Rabbi Shimba Levi and Sanhedrin. What other piece I'd like to look at here? 
There's a story about Unclus. That Unclus, according to this Agadan, Masachat Avodah it's source number 10 on the page, um, was a, a relative of the Roman nobility, nephew of Titus, and he declared, or he did declare, he wanted to convert, he did convert, and Titus sent soldiers to go get him. The first set of soldiers he sent started schmoozing with him, and before long they all converted. What converted mean? Does it mean that they said they're going to be Jewish? It means that they pledged money? It doesn't mean, unclear. But clearly, Uncles was not running a baiting factory on the spot, but they converted. So, the, so Titus sends another group, and he tells the other group, don't talk to him. Fine. So they go, they don't say anything, but he engages them, they respond, they all convert. So he sends another group, and he says to them, don't say, don't respond, don't nothing. So he comes, they come, they grab him, they don't say anything, and on the way out he touches the mezuzah, and of course they say, what's that? And before, okay, they all convert. <laughs> the, the, the guards are outside, and the king's inside, here our king's outside, we're inside, oh, they all convert. And Titus gives up. What story is that? It's two stories in Tanakh. And, the, and we're going to get that. The second story is built on the first story. What's the first story? Shaul running after David, who has fled to Nayot Paralat, to Shmuel. Parakutet, it's all marked there. Parakutet and Shmuel Aleph. David runs away. Remember Michal lets him out through the window, doing that Rachab thing? And, and he runs away to Nayot. And Shaul sends a group of soldiers to get him, bring him back to kill him. What happens? Shmuel is running a prophetic exercise. And these soldiers get seized by the prophecy. Shaul sends another group. They get seized by the prophecy. He sends a third group. They all seized by the prophecy. And following the biblical pattern that you're probably all familiar with, of three plus one, Shaul then goes. And by the time he gets there, Hagam Shaul Banavim, Suddenly, Shaul is seized by prophecy, and David runs away. And then, in the very first passage in Malachim Bet, Ahaziahu sends messengers to go find out, to go ask Baal Zvul. We call him Baal Zvuv, so that the guy could write the book, The Lord of the Flies. But it's, it's real Baal, Baal Zvul, to go ask whether or not he's going to live. He's sick, whether he's going to live. They get stopped by Eliyahu, who says, you're going to ask Baal Zvuv, you're going to die. And so, Ahaziah sends messengers to go bring Eliyahu. The first group comes, they get devoured by fire. The second group comes, they get devoured by fire. The, first, the third group comes, said, please don't kill us. And they bring Eliyahu to Ahaziah, and that's how things play out. So these are stories that are in Tanakh. And what happens? We're telling the same story about Unclus. Why? Why? Now again, it could be that the same exact story happened with Unclus. It would be kind of curious three and then etc. But why, we, why are they telling the story? Why are they telling the story the, the way that they are? I want to look at a second nima in Midrash. Often what Midrashim will do, what we've, take, what we've seen so far is a few examples of stories that are told that seem to be based on a paradigm that's in Tanakh. I want to take a look at a different component in Midrash, and it's common in Midrash. I'm going to take three examples 
of books in Tanakh that have clearly discernible, discernible themes. The first is Breshit. There are a number of themes in Breshit, but one theme that courses throughout the book, besides the preference for the younger son and other things, is Midah Keneged Midah, poetic justice. The fact that what you put out there comes back to bite you, or comes back to reward you. And Chazal is sensitive to that, and they pick it up in the famous Mishnah and the Sugyan Masachet Sota, and they pick it up overtly. And uh, so Yaakov, who tricks his father in the dark, is tricked in the dark. Yehuda, who connives with the Hakerna, is then reproved with Tamar's Hakerna throughout the book. The Midrash picks up on this and intensifies it. The Midrash picks up on the theme and says, the theme of Bereshit is Midah Keneged Midah, therefore we're going to identify more Midah Keneged Midah in Bereshit. And so, for instance, beautiful Midrashim. Um, if you turn the page, take a look at, uh, I already mentioned source 11, take a look at source 12, sorry, source 13. Um, I skipped. Ah, I skipped. Sorry. Okay. Source, source 11. Right. It's source 11. Back on the first page. Sorry. It's source 11. Um, and it's, it's really delightful. Yaakov marries Rachel, Leah. Um, and in the morning, Vihinehi Leah. So the text asks, when, what do you mean, the Midrash asks, what do you mean Vihinehi Leah? He was Leah the whole time. And so it records a conversation that Yaakov's having with Leah. Now, of course, you can always ask, did this conversation really happen? Not my concern. Why are we even told about the conversation? Why are we told the way we are? And Yaakov turns to Leah and says, how could you do this? You ramait bata ramait. You deceiver's daughter of a deceiver. The whole night I was cooing, Rachel, Rachel, and you were going, yes, yes. And you know what her answer is? It's great. She goes, big shot. And the whole time that your father was saying, Esav, Esav, and you were saying, yes, yes. And there's lots of Midrashim of that sort in Bereshit that pick up on the theme. If you do turn the page, it's time for real. Migilat Esther is satirical. Oh, it's scary. And um, it's, a lot, it's, it's got a lot of different things going on. But the style of telling it's very funny. I want you to picture this scene in Megillat Esther. You all know the scene. Haman comes running in the middle of the night to the king's bedchambers to ask him if he will agree to have Mordechai impaled. That's what Tlia is in Megillah. In the meantime, the king has just found out that Mordechai is owed a favor. And so Haman comes rushing in. Now there's a rule when you come in to talk to the king... Make sure you remember this. The king goes first. <laughs> so Haman comes in, he's got what he wants, but the king's there, so of course the king goes first. And what's really funny is they both want to do the same thing to Mordechai. They want to elevate him. <laughs> Just a little different. And what's really funny is the king, who's way smarter than we think, and all the picture books have him as a dumb buffoon. He's brilliant. He says to Haman, Ma la'asot what should I do, can I do for somebody I really want to honor? Knowing Haman's going to think it's himself. And Haman then describes a coronation. The jig is up. And it's hilarious. 
I have a hard time. I'm about Korea. I have a hard time not cracking up in the middle of that. The Midrash in, uh, in Esther Rabbah, which is important to note, Midrash Eretz Israeli, and we're going to come back to that in a little bit, makes the comment that Haman was roughly the size of Mordechai. And so Haman went to sort of fit himself for the tree. It's a great picture. Because the thing is, Al Ha'etz Asher Hechin Lo. And the, the Gbavli also says, Asher Hechin Natsuo. He ended up preparing it for himself. But in the, in the Midrash Esther Rabbah, it goes even further. He actually got up on there. Now, important to note, we're going to come back to this. In Midrash Esther Rabbah, the tree is a cross. And Haman is not being hanged, not being impaled, he's being crucified. Um, there's a good reason for that, which we'll, again, come back to. A good reason for that, for that interpretation. And so the picture, just this image of Haman kind of doing this, I'm, I'm not videoing it, right? <laughs> doing this, you've got to be careful, you can start a new religion. Um, doing, doing this up on this tree, on this crossbar, is just hilarious. I mean, from our perspective. Zeresh, I don't know how she felt about it. Haman probably wasn't so happy. Um, there is uh, there is a long piece which I'll do outside of the text, which is in in uh, source fifteen, which tells the story. This is in what's called the Babylonian Esther Midrash. Esther is the only Sefer and Tanakh that has a full treatment midrashic treatment in the Bavli in order. If you go from in Mesachet Megillah from Daf Yod to the end of the Parak, it goes almost pasuk by pasuk, along with a lot of other additional material, and it's fascinating. And the parallels between that and the and the Esther Rabbah, which is the Eretz Yisrael Midrash, are very interesting in themselves. Eliezer Siegel in Calgary has done kind of the, the yeoman's work on this. And in the Babylonian Esther Midrash is the following story, which again has parallels in, the, in Esther Rabbah. Um, uh, tells Haman to go out and take Mordechai on the, on the horse. So Haman comes out to Mordechai, and Mordechai is out there teaching his Talmudim. And he sees Haman coming with a horse. He gets scared, tells them all to go away. And Haman has a conversation, which is just you know, delightful in the Midrash. It, it, it only could happen in the Midrash. Haman says to Mordechai, what were you doing? He says, oh, I was showing them Hilchot Kmitzah. When we had a Beit HaMikdash, we would, a person would bring a little bit of flour, do this, and have Kapara. And he says, oh, your little bit of flour pushed away my 10,000 talents of silver. Okay. Shkoyach, midah, kenehet midah. And then he says, I'm commanded to take you on the king's horse. So Mordechai says, I can't uh, go on the king's horse because I haven't bathed. Not nice. I can't put on those nice clothes. I haven't bathed. So Haman says, okay. And Esther, in the meantime, is behind all of this, has shut down all the bathhouses in Shushan. And so Haman has to get into one of them and personally bathe Mordechai. Then he says, okay, get dressed. And Mordechai says, I need a haircut. It's not nice. And so, of course, Esther had shut down all the barbershops. So I want you to get this picture. Here's Haman personally shaving Mordechai's beard. Here's Mordechai sitting here. Here's Haman behind him with a razor. And Haman lets out a sigh. And Mordechai says, so what are you sighing for? Are you kidding? I'm the most important guy in the kingdom, and here I'm shaving you. He says, what do you mean? You used to be a barber. And there's some tradition he was a barber. Okay, they get to get on the horse. And now Mordechai says, I've been fasting, I'm too weak to get on the horse. Haman gets down on all fours, and Mordechai gets on his back to get on the horse. It's delightful, it's great. And what happens? Mordechai kicks him in the behind. Now, this can only happen in the Midrash. 
He gives him a kick in the behind to get up on the horse. Haman quotes the pasuk in Mishlei. Don't rejoice when your enemy falls. And Mordechai responds, that's only with Yisrael. But when it comes to which by the way is, is also a, a subtle insult, that Haman's Bama is his behind. And they're riding through the streets, and Haman, dressed as a slave, is leading Mordechai, dressed like a servant. You probably all know this, but it's just so delightful to hear. And they're walking through the street, and they go through Haman's street. Haman's daughter, we didn't know he had a daughter, won't be for long. Haman's daughter is outside taking care of the chamber pot. You don't know what a chamber pot is? I'm not going to tell you. She sees a guy dressed up as a slave, leading a guy dressed up as the king, figures the guy dressed up as the slave is Mordechai. The guy dressed up as the king is Haman. Everybody's in costume. You understand the meaning of costumes. She takes the chamber pot and dumps it on the slave. Slave looks up. Oh, yeah, ouch. The slave looks up, and she sees it's her father. She jumps off the roof and kills herself, and that's why the pasuk says that Haman returned Avel. Say it. God, say it. Say it. Chafui Rosh. Avel because of his daughter, Chafui Rosh because... Um... But th- this is just, and where's this coming from? You don't hear Agadot like this anywhere else. It's because Esther is funny. And so Midrash Esther is funnier. But today is Zion Ba'av. And the same thing happens in Midrash Echa. Echa is a very sad book. Midrash Echa looks, makes Echa look like a walk in the park. Midrash Eicha is supremely painful. And the Midrash that you see here, that I'm going to reference outside, many of you are very familiar with it from a lot of contexts. The Midrash here, which shows up in several different iterations, it actually has its source seemingly in the second book of Maccabees. It's the Midrash of a woman and her seven sons. Quick version. The governor... Greek, Roman, unclear, demands that this woman, evidently a widow with her seven sons, come before him and demands that the eldest son bow down to the idol. And the eldest son throws a pasuk. In some cases, it's, they go through Aserata de Brot and other pasukim, and, he, and he's killed. We get all the way down to the seventh son. And the mother's standing by. We don't hear her do anything. And, and the seventh son's about to be killed because he also says to the king, I'm not going to do it, to the governor, whoever it is. And the woman asks to embrace her son. She embraces her son and she says to him the following thing. Um, take a look. It's about six lines, seven lines from the bottom of the big source, source 16 on the page. Um, Start from the line that has the word echad at the beginning. It's about eight lines up. Amra lo'imo, at the end of the line. Bni, this is the youngest son. Al yirach levavcha v'altechat. Don't be afraid. You're joining your brothers. There's pain in this. V'yatan nitan betoch cheko shal Avraham Avinu. Interesting image. That you're going to be embraced by Avraham Avinu. V'amor lo mishmi. You go tell Avraham in my name. You built one altar and did not offer your son. 
אבל אני בניתי שבעה מזבחות והקרבתי את בניי עליהם. And so the, the pain in Midrash Echa, again, intensifies and deepens the pain of Migilat Echa. I'd like to go now to a, a third area and then want to bring it all together and discuss in, in a broader sense what's going on. Um... Midrashim, when we speak about Midrashim as a literary genre and as a literary collection, not as the enterprise of Midrash, which again continues to exist, and we'll talk about that towards the end. The, the large majority of the Midrashim that we have in our hands are, are Eretz Yisrael, composed in Eretz Yisrael, and they're composed during the Byzantine era, and perhaps a little later. Late Roman Byzantine. And in Eretz Yisrael, Christianity was in existence and during most of the Midrash Akira on the, in the, on the ascent in power. The reality is that we have numerous Midrashim which are veiled responses to and polemics against Christianity. I'll give you one quick example. Midrash Rabbah, it's not on the page. Midrash Rabbah and Breshit Rabbah, beginning of Breshit. All familiar. The question is, what is Vayikadeshoto? What, how did he sanctify it? So he makes an interesting comment. He says, every other holiday could be on any day of the week, but Shabbat never moves. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Paul. But I'll give you a more extreme example, a more obvious example. Perhaps the thorniest phrase that we have in the whole story of Breshit, and it's all very difficult to interpret and to unravel, is when HaKadosh Baruch Hu on the sixth day says, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Just the use of the plural there is the huge problem. The use of the Tzalem and Demut becomes another problem. And of course, the Christians love this Pasuk because it's Papa. Talking to Junior and Casper, let's make God, you know, man look like us. Sorry, I have to do that. Uh, just as an aside, and I have friends who are religious Christians, but the, the Gemara in Megillah says, Kolet Sanuta Sira, Barmilet Sanuta Davodazara. So once in a while, we've got to get something in. Yeah, I figure it's a lot safer here than, than at an ecumenical conference. <laughs> um, the Midrash, this is an astounding thing. The same Rabbi Shlomo Nachman, quoting the same Rabbi Yonatan. HaKadosh Baruch Hu told Moshe, write these words, Nasa Adam Moshe turns to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and says, You're giving an opening. Who is Moshe concerned with? The Kananim, you think they care what it says in the Torah? The Moavim, you think they care what it says in the Torah? Think the Egyptians are going to come after and say, ha ha, see? 
Chazal are putting into Moshe's mouth a problem they have, which is, by writing Na'asah Adam Etzalmenu, you have given fuel to our contemporary enemy to make the claim of a trinity, or of polytheism. And so this sort of response to the real world that's happening around them being put into the words of the Torah via the Midrash is really a fairly common thing. Let me show you an example of that right here. If you take a look at the bottom of the second page, source 17. Source. Oh, okay. Good. We have different... Okay. Top page three? Okay, thank you. All right. Uh, in Breshit Rabbah, you have the Akedah. Now, it's important to note that the Akedah became, among others, a source of great friction between Chazal and the Church Fathers. And you can imagine why. Because of the sacrifice, crucifixion, etc. Please take a look at what Chazal say. Again, in there's no mention in any of these midrashim. It's not a record of a dialogue. It's not like reading Ramban's Vikuach. He said this and I said that. It's just our own midrash. What we have to imagine is we're sitting in Eretz Yisrael in the third century. And there's this other group that's on the rise that's competing with us over Baalut, over ownership of the Torah and of the correct tradition. So Avraham takes the wood and puts him on Yitzchak. And what's the comment? Just literal translation. As someone who's carrying his own cross on his back. Now that's not the picture we have of the Akedah. We have a picture of wood as a bundle of wood. What are Chazal doing here? You ever heard the phrase? We've all heard the phrase. That's my cross to bear. Right. Where'd that come from? It comes from this line in Matthew. I didn't want to put it in Hebrew. Right. It comes from this line in Matthew. Where he says, he told his disciples, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's where that comes from. Do you understand that the Midrash in Breshit, Akedah, is talking to and is responding to Christian claims of superiority and of the ultimate sacrifice and is saying and is putting the Akedah starting up by even footing and then of course on greater. I want to take this into a last piece of the puzzle. As a uh, high school teacher an itinerant Ask the Rabbi guy, I often get the question, I'm sure many of you get this question, what does the Torah say about? What does Judaism say about? And my favorite, what do Chazal say about? And in many cases, you know, what do they say about murder's bad? That's pretty clear. But in a lot of cases, the answer's got to be machloket. If I were to ask you right now, when Mashiach comes, what's going to happen to the rest of the world? Machloket. It's Machloket. You have Yeshayahu Bet on the one hand. You have Yoel Gimel Dalad. 
Is it a day of great judgment and, and bloodshed and apocalyptic destruction? Or is it a great day of great peace and everybody streaming to Yerushalayim to learn Torah? Is it Zechariah Yudalad, where the nations will all come to celebrate Sukkot and if they don't come, it won't rain for them? Is it inclusive or exclusive? Truth is, in the Nevi'im, it's a machloket. Now, you might not want to say machloket, and we will perhaps want to look at it a little differently in Tanakh. If you think about it, the nevuot that are given in Tanakh that are short-range nevuot, like Yirmiyahu talking about Yehoiakim, those are very explicit, clear, and, um, and there's nothing opaque about them. The further in the distance the nevuah is aimed at, the more vague it is. Such that there are multiple ways in which that nevuah may play out. Classic example, Brit Ben Abitarim. Do I know who the goy who's going to oppress Avram's seed is going to be? Is it Lavan? Is it Mitzrayim? Is it Bechol Dorador? I don't know. Do I know Doravi from when? What it was Abraham Yotshan? I mean, it's all vague, and it's vague enough to allow different scenarios to play out to be the ultimate fulfillment of that nevuah. And this is true about all nevuot that are far in the distance, so all the eschatological nevuot, about end of days, all follow that pattern. And so it's indeed a reasonable uh, proposal say that the various nevuot that we have about end of days scenarios, Mashiach, etc., are all like a platter of possibilities. And ultimately, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to decide which one to take, or a mixture of them, or something we didn't hear about. But the interesting thing is that when you ask what do Chazal say about it, you find that Chazal, in many cases, continue the Machloket. Perhaps the most glaring example of this is in passage 19. We have the Machloket about whether or not Mashiach will come with or without Shuvah. Rabbi Yezah versus Rabbi Yeshua. And look at what they do. Aleph through Chet. Each one of them throws a pasuk out to support their position. And notice, in no sense does the other one deny that pasuk. He just says, I got a different pasuk. And I guess we all breathe more comfortably because at the end of Shadak Rebeliezer, Rabbi Yeshua says, with or without, in a sense, the Mashiach will come, perhaps a different scenario. But the notion is that this is a machloket that seems to exist in Tanakh about whether is dependent on you reflecting and you returning, or whether it's going to be like your where he's going to bring us without us doing anything. And Chazal seemed to continue that, those strains. A second example of that is exactly about the issue of the role of the nations. In the future, you see it in Sources 2021. The last example I want to bring is kind of a curious way to ask the question. But where's the Shekhinah? The way that HaKadosh Baruch Hu speaks to Shlomo after the dedication of the Mikdash, we get the sense that to put it into halachic terminology, Kedusha Rishonah Kitsha Lashatah V'Kitsha Lati 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence will always be in the place of the Mikdash. And our practice certainly supports that. That's where we face, as is presented in that dedication. Drives the direction that we face, and we've been facing for thousands of years, with, without a Mikdash, with, without Yerushalayim in our hands, with, without a Medina. We continue to, and have always, faced Yerushalayim, and faced Harabayit. On the other hand, please note, source 23, Wherever B'nai Yisrael going to Galut, HaKadosh Baruch Hu goes with them. He went with us down to Mitzrayim, but he also went to Bavel. And in the Gemara Nigilat even asks, which shul is HaKadosh Baruch Hu in Bavel? In Shafi Ativ, two different shuls, here, there, back and forth. And even stories about feeling the Shekhinah there. And yet, in the source just before that, you have the story about Rabiosi. One time walking into Chorva Achatmi Chorvot Yerushalayim. Meaning, this is after the destruction of the Mikdash. And he walks into the Chorva. The whole story with Eliyahu. And what does he hear in the Chorva? Here's a bat call which moans over the fact that he has exiled his children from his own house, which means where is the Shekhinah? Where is HaKadosh Baruch Hu right now? He's there. Does the Shekhinah stay with the place, or does the Shekhinah go with the people? If you look at Malachim Aleph, the Shekhinah stays in the place. If you read Yechezkel Yud Aleph, what's his vision? The chariot leaving and the Shekhinah leaving and going to where the people are in Galut, and more importantly, leaving its abode. This very essential machloket that exists in Tanakh is continued in rabbinic traditions. What we've looked at over the course of the first almost hour of the shiur is examples from four different types of midrashim. Midrashim that take stories in Tanakh and seem to identify them as stories that are happening at a later time, in their time, or in earlier times, but after Tanakh. We've seen um, examples of uh, a polemic. We've seen exa- polemic against Christianity in that case. We've seen examples of Machlokot continuing. We've seen examples of taking the theme of a book and internalizing and deepening it, etc., We've also seen one other that we've sort of skirted around. But that is that what the Midrash often does is it takes figures in Tanakh and identifies them, in a sense, in current times. When the woman says to her children, to her seventh son, go tell Avraham Avinu what I did and what you did, and what I've been prepared to do, suddenly Avraham Avinu becomes a living character. When Esav is described in the Midrash as a Roman centurion, when Haman is paraded in the streets, I told you to get back to this, in the streets of Rome in 415, burned in effigy on a cross, 
What's happening is that figures from Tanakh are coming to life in later figures. When Yosef and his brothers and that entire scenario is replayed as identified in some of the later Midrashim as the different sects that existed during the times just before Choban Habayit or even in the Hashmonai story. What you have is the characters from Tanakh being brought to life. So five different ways that we've identified it's five of, of a number of others. The enterprise of Midrash has essentially actualized and contemporized the stories in Tanakh. I start out with two questions, and I'm just going to ask a third, and we're going to answer all three right now. Where did the Baalei HaMidrash, the composers of these Midrashim, where did they get the mandate to do this? So if you have a Tanakh, I'll draw your attention right now to Sefer Dvarim Perak Chafalef. If not, it's something you probably are familiar with. If you take a look at Sefer Dvarim Perak Chafalef, and you see in Pasuk uh, Tetvav, Man has two wives, he likes one, prefers one, prefers the other one less. That's how Alvan Snah should be read there, and any time that there's more than one. And they both have children, and the eldest is born to the least favored one. He is not allowed to, on the day that he bequeaths his possessions, to favor the Ben Ha'ahuva. So let's just, for example, so that we can kind of picture this, let's, let's use some names. Let's say he marries uh, an Ahuva, we'll call her Rachel, why not? And then a Snua, Leah, why not? And then Leah has the first kid, and what do you want to name him? Good idea, I like the name. And then, uh, and then you want to name uh, the other one's kid, uh, Yosef, good. Okay, and what's the text say? On the day that he dies, he may not favor Yosef over Ruvain, which, by the way, is exactly what happened. So the Rishonim on the spot are challenged by Yaakov's behavior, the easiest ex- ex- explanation is, well, it's before Matan Torah. The Sforno says a little differently, where he says, well, if the father sees that the eldest son, who is the Bechor, is not behaving appropriately, he has the right to switch things around. Uh, it's a very difficult position. Um, but what do you see here? You see that Tanakh itself is commenting on itself. A much broader example is the character of Esav. What happens to Esav in Breshit? He ends up actually being a pretty good guy. He's got a temper, but at the end, what happens? Reunification is beautiful. He embraces Yaakov. Yeah, I know the vampire, but he embraces Yaakov. And, and then, at the end, he bugs out so that Yaakov can have Canaan. That's the last we hear of him. What happens to Esav in Sefer Bamidbar? Esav hu Edom, Vaishlach Yisrael Malachim El Edom, which is exactly Vaishlach Yaakov Malachim El Esav. And Edom refuses to let them go through. What happens to Edom later on? They become the focal point of unending hatred. Look at Amos Aleph. Ve'avratosh Shemara Netzach. They held on to their anger and their hatred for their brother Yaakov forever. So what happens to Esav? And then look at the beginning of Malachiv at Esav Saneti. What happens to the person Esav in Tanakh? The person Esav becomes a paradigm. Becomes not only a nation, 
but a model. And what happens to Esav later on in Midrashic history? So Gerson Cohen wrote the article on it. Esav becomes, Edom becomes, Rome becomes the Vatican. So where does this come from? It starts in Tanakh itself. There are countless examples. I'll bring you just two more quickly. You read the story of Bilam on the donkey. What immediately comes to mind? Here's a guy getting up early in the morning, important guy, himself saddling his donkey, taking two boys with him to go on a mission. Who's that? That's Abraham. Read the story against the Akedah, and you can see it is a contrasting story to the Akedah. It's using the Akedah to tell us how terrible Bilam is. That's Midrash. So when he asked the question, where did the Balei HaMidrash get their mandate from? They got their mandate from the Tanakh. They see that within the Tanakh itself, stories don't happen on a flat line. Stories happen and they become paradigmatic. They repeat with a different flavor. You read the story of Avraham and then look at the story of Gidon and suddenly you see that there's a little bit of Avraham and Gidon. Do we need to look further than all of the pieces of Yoshua that are repetitions of Moshe, which of course is very deliberate? So it's not as if the Balei HaMidrash are saying, hey, I got a great idea. They're simply continuing a tradition that starts in Tanakh itself. It's a tradition that perhaps even starts as early as Breshit, commenting on the first 11 chapters, or building on the first 11 chapters. What's the biggest rivalry in Breshit? Between whom? Yaakov and Esav, right? I mean, we'll start with Yaakov and Esav. And Yaakov is presented at the beginning as a farmer, and Esav is a, is a, uh, sorry, is a, is a rancher, and Esav is a farmer. And where does that go back to? Cain and Hevel. And so, looking at Tanakh this way, understanding that when Tanakh tells us a story, it's not a flat story that happened one time. It becomes a paradigm, becomes a model. El HaShemachol Dor Vador is a central line in the Seder. Because we recognize that what we're celebrating Pesach night is a, not a one-time event. It's something that continues to happen throughout history. And we continue to experience it. And so what did the Baalei HaMidrash, if you will, bequeath to us? So if you take look, a look through homiletic literature, Midrashim, but Drashot, if you will, of the past thousand years, Drashot that are written, Drashot that somebody copied down. You will find that in the case of the ones that made it, and I'll explain that line because it's critical to understanding this entire piece. If you look at the ones that made it, they are engaged in the same exact thing. Speaking about the Nazis, Yimach Shmam as Amalek, is a Midrashic motif. Speaking about the Soviet Union in whatever kind of terms. Referring to somebody as an Esav or as an Amalek, or as a Yehoshua or as a Gidon, is a midrashic motif. It is part of the very special nature of memory, read Chaim Yerushalmi Zachor, that is the way that Am Yisrael looks at history and looks at the present and looks at itself. When I say which midrashim made it, midrashim that we speak about were by and large presented in a public forum in Shul. 
to people. Well, they weren't part of the scholarly elite, they were presented to people, which is why many of the Midrashim, most of the Midrashim are in Aramaic. And the purpose of the Midrashim was to console, to inspire, to warn, depending on the context, depending on the lesson that's attempted to be brought out. I don't have any evidence of this because it's evidence of absence. Evidence which is absent, sorry. But I'm willing to wager that of the Midrashim that we have in the corpus of Midrashim, there are probably 15 to 20 times as many Midrashim that were said that were lost. And they were lost for good reason. Because Midrashim were all balpeh. What happened when somebody got up and gave a drasha and it really hit home? What happened? It got repeated. And it got repeated so much that it became part of the toda'ah, the awareness of the Midrashic corpus, and then finally it became written in. The same thing has happened ever since then. We have famous vertlach, very observations, drashot, of people throughout the centuries. People as recently, just to name one of the great darshanim of the 20th century, of Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, may he live and do well, that clearly hit home and are a piece of their time, and yet they're timeless. And where did Dr. Lamb get the mandate to do that? Where did the Rav get the mandate to do that? From the Midrashim. But ultimately, it's all anchored in the Tanakh, that itself engages in Midrash, in commenting on its own stories, and in using them to highlight lessons. Now, of course, there's always a danger in this. Because somebody can come up, and we're coming into an election season now, so this is going to happen over and over. Somebody can come up and quote whatever they want to and draw whatever lesson they want out, to, out of it and say, uh, you know, Breshit Bar Elohim, therefore vote for me, and somehow that's a Midrash. That's not the case. And that's why it's Hillel's statement that that Am Yisrael seems to have a sort of internal sense of where Amet is that there are certain of these statements that hit home and become part of the national awareness of Midrashic enterprise. And of course, when somebody does get, get up and say something kind of foolish, in some cases, it has to be taken down. There has to be responses. There has to be, to be, to be um, uh, some sort of, uh, of uh, a confrontation to that. But for the most part, the wonderful and fantastic ongoing Limur HaTorah that we're involved with is based on a model that exists as early as Sefer Breshit and a model that continues until our day. Again, we've been studying together Lezichra Shel Abigail Rak, Zichra Libracha, Yehi Zichra Baruch.